0: Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future.
1: Hi, I'm Dominic Hopson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Heslin Kim, Chief Strategy Officer and co-founder of Super Oracles, a business founded on the belief that blockchain cannot fulfill its full potential without making serious technical progress in three areas, smart contracts, oracles and security. Heslin, thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Dominic. I love the Future of Finance podcast and been listening uh, quite avidly to everything that's been coming out and, and glad to be here again. Well, it's great
1: to have you. I thought we'd begin uh, at the risk of repeating what I've just said and ask you to state in your own words, what were the problems that Super Oracles was set up to solve?
0: Right, so <clears throat> typically, you know, over the last several years, um, there's been a, a disjunct between web three environments, blockchain environments, and web two in general, it's tr- uh, specifically traditional finance. Um, blockchains themselves are isolated ecosystems. So they're unable to communicate with the outside world. It means that if there are any uh, instances of, let's say credit scores or you know something like sports data, or, or even prices of uh, random derivatives or equities, uh, that kind of information cannot enter a blockchain. And to do so, you need an Oracle to actually port that data from any kind of real-world API uh, into a blockchain environment. We call those uh, off-chain situations in the real world and on-chain situations in, in, into Web3. So what we're doing at Super Oracles is really trying to solve, uh, You know, we, we built something that's more, high security, it's it's very high throughput, high transaction volume, uh, a very low cost Oracle with strong API connectivity and availability. So we can do real time calls in a blockchain web three environment um, that's porting out to web two and bringing that back on chain.
1: Now, describing the problem as you've just done very articulately uh, is one thing. There's lots of very smart people working on exactly these same problems. What particular knowledge or particular experience uh, and above all, what engineering skills did, did you and your colleagues
0: bring to the resolution of these problems? So I'm a developer, um, but just a business developer. <laughs> so I stick to my strong suit when I'm, when I'm leading into the, the growth and, and acceleration of the company, but we have a fantastic R&D team, really deep academia, uh, very seminal pieces that they've all written that have affected crypto uh, over, over the last decade or so. So specifically, we have a Dr. Aniket Kate, A-N-I-K-E-T, last name Kate, K-A-T-E. And Dr. Aniket Kate is famous for two papers. One paper is called Distributed Key Generation in the Wild. <clears throat> That's circa 2010. That was where the original architecture was based off of. And then another paper in 2012 called Constant-Sized Commitments to Polynomials and Their Applications. Now, those two papers are very interesting uh, uh, from a legacy perspective of the growth of of blockchain and crypto and and mainstream adoption. Uh, The reason being is that um, the polynomial commitments that Dr. Cate had envisioned uh, had led to the growth of ZK-SNARKs, ZK proof systems, and just to wrap it up at high level, privacy transactions. And so Dr. Kate's work is some of the foundational pieces and elements for privacy transactions moving forward, which are obviously uh, an incredibly uh, useful and necessary function for any kind of adoption from 5 that would be interested in Web3. Uh, along with that, Dr. Kate's work also led to scaling techniques and optimizations or Ethereum 2.0. So, the ability from Ethereum 2.0 to shift from proof of work to proof of stake, and then claim that they're going to be able to get, you know, currently they're sitting around 13,13 one, uh, transactions per second, and they're looking to scale upwards uh, of around 100,000 or so. Um, these techniques that they're using are all predicated on Dr. Kate's work. And so, Dr. Kate has uh, originally joined us as uh, an advisor. And he's now full time as our chief research officer. So, with deep academia involved, we've got another team of around uh, 10, 11 PhDs who have, uh, you know, longstanding backgrounds in cryptography, uh, SMPC, which is a type of uh, hot wallet servicing, um, and many other uh, in-depth, you know, uh, ar- arenas that really help shape the the crypto environment. So. From our perspective, uh, it's really important that everything's rooted initially in that research side of things. So that theoretically, uh, the consensus algorithm, the structure of the actual oracles, and we're actually doing bridges as well, and all of these various components is, uh, is academically rooted to, to push things forward, to solidify any kind of uh, potential hypotheses or, or theories about why things could fail, run simulations uh, at Hominem where we're pushing out, I think we've done around 1500 simulations to date uh, with with, um, quite low specs uh, for compute power and, and processing to really drive home what real world environments would look like. Now engineering takes all of that and then translates it into an actual product. And so, you know, from an engineering perspective I think first comes research, then comes engineering, then comes product. And then comes BD and and growth. And I'm on that BD and growth side. So, um, you know, we're we're just accelerating things over the past several years, Uh, but we're we're coming to fruition relatively soon in the next six months or so.
1: As you've been looking at this over the last four years, these off-chain sources, these Oracle sources, not just prices, but all sorts of uh, bits of information which can feed various, um, uh, what's the word, protocols in in d5 for example like a sport or politics or the weather or, or, or anything what have you actually learned about the uh the quality of those um those oracles um and i'm thinking here of there must be huge variations in the quality of the data the reliability of the data do you get involved in that or is it all just about actually making that process more secure more private and faster Or do you actually start to think about what is this data actually worth? How reliable is it?
0: Yeah, I mean, from a, a big data perspective, there's always been this element over the last four or five years of um, considering what types of data are going to be in mainstream consumption across the Web3 environment in general. So you know, we've been open to exploring what sports data uh, could look like being brought on chain because there's a very large market out there for sports betting Prediction betting and you know some some sorts of um, uh, sports gambling and these types of things. So that market's uh, an interesting market to look at. While uh, in many countries it's it's heavily regulated already, uh, there are areas where it's it's an it's an open playing field, uh, and the same goes for things like um, online poker and, and these types of institutions. But you know, I think from uh, what we've gathered over the last four or five years. There is a an open environment uh, where it, it's really a play uh, a playground a sandbox to see within the Web3 ecosystem what's really gonna uh, what's really going to to generate the most interest from developers who are uh, seeing mainstream adoption from users as quickly as possible and it's been very low hanging fruit specifically rooted towards cryptocurrency pricing feeds but also uh, we've got you know we sent out a survey to around. 200 plus uh, co-founders, CTOs, and senior developers across the ecosystem, and asked them uh, what type of data feeds would you uh, would you require, and what type of data feeds would you, um, uh, if you had a wish list, what would you ask for? And we found that crypto data feeds are obviously number one, but uh, second to that was interestingly enough forex prices. Uh, third was commodities. Fourth was equities. And fifth, uh, spun off into uh, things like uh, sports data feeds, uh, weather data, NFT appraisals, things like that. So I think it's an interesting model to see what the wish list could be uh, because when you dive and you start to work on those long tail assets, it starts to open up the potential development arena that new Web3 participants can start to work on new projects, right? Because Web3 really is this sandbox opportunity. So, what kinds of things would they build uh, if they had access to further forex data? If they had access to um, sports data and weather data and equities feeds, you know, what type of products are there not out now that could be out in the future? And I think a really interesting spin-off of that, and you know, how that could stimulate stimulate your mind. Andre uh, Andre uh, Kron- Kronig uh, built out a platform called Yearn Finance. And that's essentially how DeFi or decentralized finance in general really gained mainstream momentum, especially within the Web3 environment first, but now it's carrying over into, um, into TradFi and, and, and the Web2 environment as well. You know, it's, it's amazing that a single developer with an idea and concept for a yield generating platform in a, a Web3 environment using oracles and using Um, uh, native layer one technology and these smart contracts could create an environment that generates multi-billion dollars, you know, just off a a single platform that him and a few other developers built. Uh, And then that's garnered and and led to the momentum and and massive wave of adoption of DeFi across many different platforms, many different iterations and clones uh, and benchmarks of that original design that have led into things that are now being utilized by major financial institutions. So for instance, um, you know, just to to give a bit of social proofing on how DeFi is now moving into the mainstream, there's a project in Singapore uh, led by the Monetary Authority of Singapore called Project Guardian. And Project Guardian's looking at having open, interoperable, um, unregulated uh, DeFi networks uh, allowing for the, these trust anchors and verified credentials to to have these you know counterparties who are all within the same consortia, and then allow this regulated DeFi environment with these participants. And how can you uh, create a, a regulated environment that's also permissionless, that's also trustless, where the parties themselves can remain hidden and anonymous at any given time? And how how did how does this framework eventually? Move into something where where legislators feel comfortable with it, and it is adopted by larger institutions. Um, so it's a very interesting model to see that Web three acts in this this sandbox perspective, and then carrying over these smaller ideas that have garnered momentum into you know how can that scale at large for mainstream adoption and, and utility. So it's something that you know over the scope of the last four or five years for us as a company. We're always watching the trends. We're always watching what's new and up and coming, the emerging markets, uh, because I think that's a, 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 a key indicator of where things are going to head in the future, uh, especially as as um, um, TradFi starts to dabble in, uh, across the, the Web3 and DeFi markets in general. I, I can see from what you're saying that, that better,
1: faster, faster, greater variety of oracles, more and more data means more products, means more innovation, means more multi 1000000000 multi-billion dollar markets uh, developing in DeFi. And uh, right. DeFi is, is moving into the mainstream. Um, but this is taking place against a background, uh, things have picked up a bit of late, but it, you know, since the autumn of last year, um, the cryptocurrency DeFi NFG markets have all undergone some re-rating, if I might put it that way. And I wonder, um, your enthusiasm has obviously survived that, that re-rating, um, but how has it affected your business?
0: Uh, you know, I think it's a really interesting position to be in because right when we started to come to market, that was around the time that the um, Terra Layer 1 platform was really starting to scale. Solana had already you know, done uh, multi 100x on their, on their valuation. Um, there were iterations of layer twos like Polygon that have now got fantastic partnerships from Disney to Stripe um, and, and so on. And these platforms were all coming out and moving you know, at, at incredible speeds uh, alongside traditional um, uh, markets as well. Now, I think when the crash happened, it's a very interesting thing in this cycle. So I, I've been around for one, previous large cycle in the 2017 to 2018 frame. Um, But this cycle itself was an incredible blow off top because we saw valuations rise for some projects upwards of 1200 times the original price of early stage investments. I mean, that's astronomical. Now, um, it's also amazing that these layer ones could um, garner and justify such large valuations themselves and then collapse almost to zero. So the Terra ecosystem completely fell, bottom fell out of that. That went from around uh, 60 plus billion market cap down to down to zero. Uh, the Solana ecosystem itself has been having incredible liveness failures. Uh, they've gone down about seven times over the last uh, eight, nine months. And if you're looking for a layer one backbone that's essentially you know, layer one is essentially your operating system or your data center, right? If your if your data center goes down eight nine times for extended periods, but you're also uh, relying on this data center to process your transactions, your payments, um, I- any type of information like that, your trades, if that's delayed for five hours, twelve hours, thirty six hours, uh, that's a huge amount of money that can be lost. So. You know, I think the Solana ecosystem itself has, has taken a, a very large hit. Now, the interesting thing of, of what that leaves us uh, from uh, from a high level perspective of uh, of market vantage point is that there's a very open door at the moment for other layer one technologies, uh, other operating systems, these, these databases to come in and you know essentially take a a, a much longer um, uh, roadmap for for. Uh, growth and potential user adoption. So from our perspective, you know, it's, it's really kind of encompassed our go-to-market strategy already, uh, which is originally coming to market as, you know, first and foremost, Supra is really trying to solve the Oracle problem first. Um, and the way you get information today is, is too slow, it's too expensive, and there's incredibly weak security guarantees. So for us to go to market, It's been uh, quite simple, I think, because we are providing that higher security, the higher throughput and speed um, at a rate that's roughly can can be comparable at some instances, to around 10 times faster uh, Oracle lookup requests than than other competitors on the market. Um, And and from this being one of our our first phases, moving into phase two, which I think um, ties up this whole picture, is so it will be coming into market as an intra layer uh, probably in the next uh, month or two? So, information coming out here first. Uh, but, Supra, Supra Oracles will be dropping the name Oracles, will just be coming to market as Supra and Supra as an intra layer. So, an intra layer being a layer that sits between layer ones, layer twos, and also dApps um, w- within these multiple environments. Uh, that would stand for the public and permissionless side. Now we're also acting as an interlayer for DLT networks. So private permission networks typically used in in large consortia. Um, We're we're looking to bridge the private permission networks as an interlayer into the public permissionless networks. So, you know, with that in mind in this whole um, macro environment, layer ones in this last cycle have really fallen off off their peaks. Um, There's a lack of trust there's a lack of uh, security guarantees, there's a lack, of, a lack of reliability. And now we've got this great opportunity to act as this uh, central middle, middleware, right? A, a middleware neutral player that can partner with all these various layer ones, all these various layer two ecosystems and really try to facilitate better communication, more secure communication and faster communication uh, between all these relative counterparties, which currently doesn't exist. So for this bear market environment, it's a great opportunity for us to reposition ourselves uh, with our product line to make it more clear about what we're able to provide and to find the right partners who are, you know, in a bear market, it's, it's a great time to build and develop and work directly with partners who are looking to scale into the next bull market. So, you know, we found it a fantastic opportunity to kind of slow down the pace for uh, external events and, and promotions and marketing, and really focus internally on growth, uh, long-term strategy, and how we want to align for user acquisition, both from a customer perspective, as well as clients who might be um, utilizing the oracles, uh, the node operators who, who run the network, and even the uh, investor groups who have already participated in getting deeper alignment uh, with everyone. So it's been uh, it's been more busy than the bull market, <laughs> for us, somehow, um, but but uh, I'll take a, I'll take a bull market any day <laughs> over a, over a bear market.
1: Well, uh, more busy than the bull market uh, prompts a thought in my mind. Um, listening to you, you know, you're you're obviously adapting your business to the crypto winter. You're doing well inside this this crypto winter. Can I ask you to be a bit more explicit, perhaps, and, uh, mm-hmm. about the point you were making there about this? Building. I'm hesitant to use the word bridge or wormhole or anything, but building these links, if you like, between mm-hmm. layer one and, and layer two, what does that tell us? The fact that's an opportunity for you and, and, and is one you can exploit because you're kind of there already. Um, what does that tell us about what's going on in the marketplace? What does it tell us about the evolution and the maturity of the marketplace that you are, you are serving? Is something fundamental changing here, which you're able to, to service and to exploit?
0: Yeah, I think that that's a great question. Um, if you if you look at the the historicals of, of how we've gotten to this point today in the overall, excuse me, in the overall Web3 environment, um, it was initially um, uh, started with the momentum of Bitcoin, right? And, and Ethereum came out 2016, 2017, and people looked at this as such a great opportunity to become an open canvas, to start trying out new smart contracts, to start start trying uh, the sandbox and playground type of opportunity. I can create anything I want. What could I build that people might um, have interest in from a financial perspective? And as more people iterated on the original Ethereum design, they realized a lot of the failures and um, hindrances that that design actually encompassed. So Ethereum itself has quite high... Transaction costs. It has very uh, low speeds. You know, in, in the order of magnitude of uh, it could be thirty seconds, it could be several minutes, even hours. Um, and you're also exposed to lack of privacy because all transactions are not uh, at any given time. Um, and you know, with with all of this in mind, there started to be iterations of how could we make things better. So that's where you start to see the growth of other layer one opportunities. So your Solanas, your Terras, your Cardanos, your Polkadots, your Cosmos platforms, and then layer twos, because these layer ones can't scale as well, uh, why does a layer two occur? So if you've got a layer one, such as uh, Avalanche, for example, they've got something called subnets and subnets are are their layer two. So you kind of have this relationship of parent, uh, parent, mainnet chain and uh, child chain or side chain situations. And that again is because those layer ones themselves can't scale enough to handle all the transactions that might occur on, on, on their single network. Uh, now, back to your original question, because I wanted to give a, a vantage point of where the market stands now, back to your original question about how we can facilitate a deeper um, connection and start to bridge the gap between all these various players you know, we've realized over the last four or five years that there's always this discussion of interoperability. And interoperability in our terminology it means how can you connect these various layer one ecosystems where there's a huge amount of liquidity and value locked in various ones. So for instance, on the Polygon ecosystem, I think their total value um, across the ecosystem is around 7 billion. In the Avalanche uh, ecosystem, it's sitting around six and a half billion. The Ethereum ecosystem itself is, um, you know, upwards of uh, at some points was uh, around a hundred billion. Solana as well, around 60 billion or so, and Terra also. And now if if there was a way that you could start merging these ecosystems together, you can compile a much larger pool of liquidity and access points. um, and, And that's really what we're trying to do from uh, from a perspective of where we're coming uh, with Supra's business solution, so you know, step one for us was always to look at what's the what's the business um, angle that, and solution that we have here. How can we you know, you know solve and and um, become a, a sole and critical component to helping these emerging activities across these ranges of layer ones. And so the Oracle, the Oracle is one of the most um, in demand and necessary components because the layer ones can't communicate to themselves either, right? They, these are isolated uh, deterministic systems. You have to be able to pull that data from somewhere else to bring it into that layer one. And that exists for layer one, uh, layer ones across the entire uh, Web3 environment. Polkadot can't communicate with uh, Cardano and Phantom can't communicate with Casper Labs. So you've got all this disjunct liquidity everywhere. So from an Oracle side, now we can start to bring data uh, about transaction history, about certain types of smart contracts that have occurred and port it from one chain to the other, right? Now we're starting to be able to uh, bridge a bit more communication, which can impact total uh, amount of liquidity and also total amount of, of user base, right? So from you know, this step two growth perspective, we're seeing massive growth across all of DeFi, uh, distribution of projects across multiple layer win- ones, and you know it's it's starting to um, necessitate the ability for cross chain swaps and cross chain uh, data communication. So, at Supra, we're trying to act as an, interme- an intermediary, essentially a, a multilateral clearing and settlement layer um, across uh, all these various layer ones. Um, We are very well positioned for this because of our native oracles that we've already built in because of native cross chain bridges that we've already built in. And we're essentially building something that is vertically integrated uh, as an entire package. Typically within a layer one ecosystem, you launch the layer one, there are third party developers that come and build on top. You're using other protocols, you're using other tokens or gas fees. And it starts to become this layered effect where you know now you're paying Ethereum fees, now you're paying chain link fees, now you're paying cross-chain bridge gas fees to go from Ethereum to Solana. And in our environment, we're trying to wrap it all up into this vertically integrated package so we can speak, communicate, transfer with one another in one single environment that really mitigates costs, increase efficiency, uh, increases speed thanks to our consensus algorithm that's... You know, backed by these uh, by these scholars who have put out something that's essentially in today's market. Uh, it's a it's uh, one one could say it's a breakthrough as far as blockchain and the trilemma that that uh, that that's out there as far as security, uh, decentralization, and, and performance. So we're we're trying to solve for that, and I think we have. Uh, We've brought something to the market that really provides cohesiveness. Uh, across these uh, multiple ecosystems.
1: Can you put some numbers on that, that performance point? So I'm, I'm speaking here of speed and scalability, which you've touched on a number of times in, in your remarks. What are we, you mentioned Ethereum doing 13 transactions a second, um, for example, not very fast. You've talked about Oracle data speeds and so on. Can you be more explicit in terms of what sort of speeds and speed and scalability are, are different facets of the same thing, obviously? but. Can you put some numbers on it and give people a flavor of where where you've got to in solving those pretty fundamental that pretty fundamental performance issue, which still dogs blockchain,
0: right? And I'll start off with the blockchain consensus that backs this entire protocol, uh, the 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 fundamental backbone of Supra, and that's been in research and development since roughly 2017. We're now in. Um, in, in August of 2022. So it's been a long running time to actually uh, dive into this research and really flesh out every fine point and every critique that could come towards this consensus mechanism and how to refine it and sharpen it, and make sure that it's um, speaking towards any kind of security guarantee, vulnerability and overall auditing to make sure it's, it's, it's spotless. Um, now typically when when blockchains get launched, uh, they'd start with a white paper, it takes four years, and then they come to market after that. we're We're the opposite approach, four years of research, and then come to market with the the product is when we come out of step. Um, and, and so you know the the question on on benchmark and specific numbers. so what we've done uh, from a from a layer one perspective, we've created something that the TPS and finality is, is, is a breakthrough technology. So on the to- total transactions per second, we're pushing out on average around 200,000 transactions per second. In a peak environment, we've hit 526,000 transactions per second. Now, those are fantastic numbers, but how did we get there? So we've run, as I mentioned, around 1,500 simulations, uh, the engineering team itself has pulled out around uh, a around hundred different variables that equate to geography, uh, uh, the different types of hardware that's utilized, the code base, uh, the different types of um, uh, links between uh, cloud service providers and bare, bare metal node operators and data centers, and, and the list goes on and on. And those 1,500 simulations have tweaked just minor adjustments across these hundred different variables, kept track of unlimited pages of of documentation and really fine tweaking and tuning these numbers. So I remember when we first started some of the earliest stage testnet um, uh, simulations, the goal was uh, as a benchmark to surpass Solana's claim of 60,000 TPS, right? And that was kind of an industry standard at the time for for best practices and and what could be achieved. Uh, We hit that in about a month and a half. And from around that same time, we started to hear uh, word on the street about DM's blockchain, Facebook, DM, Meta, and what they were building. And they had built out a protocol that's based on something, a consensus called Hot Stuff. And Hot Stuff was achieving numbers around 100 to 120,000 transactions per second. Now, that's a, a 2x jump from what Solana was achieving, which is already a uh, you know, 20,000, 30,000 jump from what Ethereum had. So major advancements in the scalability of this technology. When we heard about um, the Aptos and and Labs suite teams, we really wanted to look into some of the construction and design, and they've pulled off some amazing things. And our, our R&D team is, uh, is, is is very competitive, and they, uh, you know, they want put, to uh, put out best of best and, and world-class um, uh, layer one infrastructure. So they um, uh, dove even deeper into re- refining all of these uh, these points. And now we've gotten to, to a stage where on one fifth of our network, the numbers I told you are only on one fifth of our network deployment off of 500 nodes, 22 globally distributed regions, a 16 core MacBook Pro essentially, 32 gigabytes RAM, one terabyte uh, storage and one gigabyte internet speed. So it's relatively low, right? It's not any kind of major database. It's not a $40,000 unit. You know, if you're using IBM Hyperledger, you might be paying $250,000 for a a single database silo. Um, Our network can be run off high-end MacBook Pros is, is basically what we're trying to throttle for. And we're still achieving these kind of metrics which are a, an order of magnitude greater than anything that's on market now. Um, if I just benchmark even further into CBDCs, the U.S. proposal for the uh, central bank-backed digital currency market, they're proposing that the world's reserve currency could run off of 1.7 million transactions per second. So the Visa network itself you know, has an average around 25,000, I think they can go up to 50,000 transactions per second. Um, Other credit card companies are around the same. Now, we're hitting upwards of 200,000 average transactions per second, 526,000 peak on one fifth of our network deployment. There's a potential that infrastructure in Web3 in a decentralized state could eventually accommodate the necessity for a world's reserve currency, whatever it may be uh, US dollar or we don't need to get in that conversation, but uh, you know, it, it, the it's an interesting model to know that from a trustless perspective, from a decentralized perspective, there could be the possibility that from uh, a performance angle, you could accommodate something at that scale. And that's what we've done here at Supra. Uh, the layer one itself is uh, over a hundred times more throughput per second than a layer one like Avalanche. Uh, and our finality, which is when a transaction actually settles on the ledger is around two and a half seconds. The team's trying to go uh, under two seconds, even potentially under one second by the time we reach mainnet. And from a, you know, from a central um, uh, understanding of that layer one and the blockchain consensus, that really scales into helping the oracles uh, the random number generation, uh, the parallel processing that we have—it's uh, all fundamentally based in the actual consensus itself. So our oracle lookup requests are within three to five seconds. Now that might sound very slow for TradFi, which is doing high-frequency trades in picoseconds. But in the blockchain world, your best, your next best alternative is Chainlink, which is getting um, you know on Finance Smart Chain around 30-second refresh rates. On Avalanche, around 45 second refresh rates. And on Ethereum, it could be several minutes, up to four or five minutes. They, they, they only uh, update their feeds on 5% swings um, in either direction. Now we're providing constant feeds in three or five seconds. So it's, it's an order of magnitude greater um, speed for, for actual data feeds on chain. As you
1: say, the trick is going to be maintaining those speeds as you scale. And you've talked a little bit about payments markets, about FX markets, which you know have very high transaction volumes, just in domestic markets that lend across borders as well. But what about the, the securities markets, the fund markets, um, bond markets? You know, I forget the transaction volume figures you get. But these are large markets, like the global bond markets, 120 trillion. Global equity markets, more than uh, even after the recent uh, decline in prices, is probably worth north of 100. Trillion. So these are these are massive opportunities for this decentralized Web3 transaction processing technology. If you like, is that are these things that you're looking at now beyond payments, beyond FX? I,
0: I, it's definitely in the pipeline. Now, if you look at a, a report that the World Economic Forum put out, they're quoting that by 2027, they're estimating there'll be about 27 trillion dollars in tokenized digital assets in multiple iterations, both in public blockchain ecosystems and private blockchain ecosystems. Uh, that's a massive number compared to what we have in just crypto Web3 right now, which is sitting around um, 2, billion, uh, 2 trillion total market cap. Uh, so long term, we definitely want to play in the digital security space, tokenized asset space, and um, uh, security token offerings in general. So. My previous background was at a company called Polymath, uh, focused on digital security, security token initiatives for a year and a half. And then over at Tokeny Solutions, uh, working hand in hand with Euronext Stock Exchange Group on their DLT initiatives and exploration of, of tokenized securities. Now, I think that if, if, if anyone in the audience believes that we will move into this space of tokenized assets, um, both uh, property, uh, Intellectual um, intellectual uh, uh, property or IP patents, um, tokenized uh, personal data, um, tokenized bonds, and any type of initiatives like this, uh, it will require the fundamental in- infrastructure that can facilitate these uh, large scale payments. Now, is is a decentralized environment ever going to reach the speeds of a centralized infrastructure in in high-frequency high frequency trading. From a theoretical perspective it, of the top minds in the world, they're saying no, right? Uh, I forget what the speed of light is, but uh, going around around the, the planet, uh, it's still impossible uh, from a decentralized perspective. Now, there is something to say about potentially uh, having nodes that run in space, which I think is a, a conversation that's starting to spin up there was a company called CryptoSat that SpaceX was launching payloads into space for that and Starlink is starting to come out and potentially there's a way to uh, increase the speeds even further. But will it ever reach picoseconds in a decentralized infrastructure? It's likely not. But now you can still increase um, increase, and, and benefit multiple markets uh, across uh, the securities industry uh, overall. So you know, if you're if you're trading on RFQ desks, uh, in, in any kind of uh, backend of an exchange, you're looking at a T plus one. If you're in Japan, it's like a T plus two or three. And there's an opportunity here to bring those transactions down to a T plus zero in a blockchain environment. Which is there are several initiatives going on from institutions like the Australian Securities Exchange. The Swiss Digital Exchange, and even the Hong Kong Exchange, I think, has a uh, something called like the Diamond Project that they're working on trying to facilitate this. NASDAQ has Project Whitney uh, for tokenization of assets, and it, basically every exchange globally is looking at how can we start to shift our um, some of our assets into a tokenized environment, albeit private or permissioned blockchains, and when is that actually going to take hold? Well. First of all, we need regulation and legislators to understand what's going on, have a defined uh, roadmap for everyone that is clear cut, because even in crypto, we don't have that yet. And then secondly would be the technology, uh, actually having the the backbone and and infrastructure to to move those assets forward in a way that everyone can understand. Education has already been there, and we've already got all the documentation and ease of use. And then thirdly, is uh, from a user acquisition standpoint, you know, what kind of customer base are are, are retail, or accredited traders, are quants, are these uh, various uh, asset managers and hedge funds? Are they uh, comfortable with using um, Web3 technology or tokenization? And uh, you know, there, there's a there's a massive amount of barriers in place, but they're all being chipped away at. And I've been in this space that space since 2017 it's been monumental to see what's been done over the last uh, you know, five years or so. And there are institutions who are making major headway in that groups like Securitize on the security token side, tokeny solutions, token soft, um, even other players like Fireblocks who have made massive leaps into um, helping financial institutions on board with crypto in a safe and very easy way, and, right? They have about around 1200 various um, uh, partnerships they've, they've uh, integrated with. Uh, even Bank of America is, is using Fireblocks. So, you know, I think from a social proofing perspective and from an uh, uh, ability to actually onboard these users, we're seeing um, that there are, are the right players in the space who are helping ease this, this, um, this um, transfer into, into Web3 tokenization and all these things later. I think it's going to be several years yeah. Yeah. Um, within the next decade we'll see it. Yeah.
1: But do you have a, do you have a favorite use case in tokenization?
0: Um, you know I think one thing that's been most interesting for me to watch is, is property, uh, tokenization of property and title deeds and it, it differs in jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, one platform that Singapore is great because it's very progressive, the regulators are very open-minded and they wanna be at the forefront of these, these, uh, these types of technology. So they've given quite a bit of licenses uh, to projects um, out there for testing out how, how this could actually work in a real world situation. So there's a company called Shareable Assets. Um, now, the, this is not a paid promotion or anything. Uh, and Shareable Assets has gone about tokenizing uh, commercial properties and offering it out to, and I think this is the one of the most important parts, to non-accredited investors. So they're allowing mom and pops and grandmas, grandfathers to invest $25, $50, I think $100 was uh, some of the lowest that was invested into five to $6 million commercial properties. Um, they might have 50, 60 units that eventually end up going to uh, local stores Uh, ice cream shops and restaurants and and small businesses, SMEs. Um, And I think it's an amazing opportunity because it closed, I think, around 13 to 15 different uh, commercial properties, all self-funded through retail, um, small checks. And so now you're able to uh, give a new type of asset class an opportunity to distribute a portfolio uh, to individuals who typically haven't had access to that. Right? There's no way anyone's going to have access to uh, investing into a six, $7 million uh, commercial property and uh, central business district in, in Singapore uh, if yeah. they don't have that kind of capital, right? So it, it, it opens up the, the door for more um, financial inclusion. And I think it's a, a great initiative to see something like that actually go live Actually, have use case and and closed that many deals so far. With I think they had around twenty five thousand total participants across those thirteen to fifteen deals. So it's a it's a incredible endeavor. Um, uh, that that one just stuck out uh, as yeah. As, yeah. as a key one. You no, know, with Future and Finance, we
1: we've been very interested to follow uh, the Singapore Exchange's efforts to bring down that ticket size, not just real estate, but actually funds, private equity funds. Uh, mm-hmm and real estate funds as well. Now, in terms of getting your own uh, achievements into the marketplace, you have um, formed partnerships with a lot of other uh, entities involved with in this right across um, the whole crypto world, the NFT, DeFi, um, and across indeed security tokens, cryptocurrency exchanges, all the rest of it, you've got relative to Binance, I think, and with uh, Tokeny, which you mentioned with FTX, Um, Now, how do those partnerships actually work as business propositions?
0: Uh, So those are all integration partners. Some of the exchanges you mentioned are players that have uh, invested into us, and we're pulling their crypto pricing feeds and streaming them into our data marketplace. Uh, We've also got um, some, some discussions with them for assisting with the growth during the public market auction and, and helping us scale with user base. So they'll promote us um, and uh, their retail users, non-US, will be able to invest into uh, our main net sale. Uh, and then other players, you know, I think you mentioned, um, uh, so, so we, we, we were also in the MasterCard Start Path program. And so with relationships like MasterCard, we've been uh, entered into both cohort one and cohort two of the MasterCard Start Path program. They've got some incredible initiatives, you know, trying to dive into how they can involve themselves in the NFT markets and and crypto and blockchain and even the Oracle side of things. So, you know, without going into too much detail because of NDAs, let's say, for example, there's uh, an environment where you want to have regulated DeFi and you've got players like um, Smave. Uh, for example, would be a, a, a random uh, borrowing lending application. Now they're using another uh, wallet um, called Ice Blocks. And imagine that this environment is allowing major institutions to uh, mitigate counterparty risk in this um, closed off ecosystem. So if, if um, uh, player A, if user A wanted to borrow uh, $1.5 billion from user C at X percent interest over this amount of time, uh, they would be able to do so all within this closed ecosystem. Now, if you started to introduce non-regulated entities uh, or non-accredited entities, but still verified uh, credentials, let's say accredited um, investors across multiple jurisdictions that have smaller check sizes, but are still verified, uh, the interesting thing is that you can then embed decentralized identities um, as well as credit scores. So let's say there's a major credit card provider who has access to 300 to 400 million users credit score database. They want to take that data embed it into a wallet and then allow accredited investors uh, to participate with, main, uh, w- with massive institutions to start doing lending and pool type of situations. Let's say that um, user A wants to borrow $100 million. There's no counterparty on the other side that has a full 100 million that they're, that they're lending. Now you can take from accredited investors, a pool of um, you know, 100,000 individuals doing uh, $1,000 each, and then you can lend that out to that institution. And so now, again, you're democratizing and and allowing smaller check sizes for these players who are typically not able to get involved in these types of situations, but you're allowing them the access point to, start interacting with global financial markets. Uh, So it doesn't have to be always institution to institution. Now you're allowing accredited investors across the space to do borrowing lending applications with major financial institutions across a widespread pool. So you know, without naming any names, uh, there are these types of um, scenarios that are, that are going on. And, and I think it's a really interesting space to see how they can, again, it's, it's, it's this play, playground sandbox type of arena to really try out these different types of uh, opportunities. So uh, the partnerships in general that we have are really about proof of concepts and moving forward with new ideas uh, we work heavily with innovation team, with strategy team, and growth team. Product about you know what types of things are those teams looking to move forward with, and how can we facilitate that over at Supra? Um, that could be from any one of these borrowing line applications to NFTs that might sit in, in you know platforms like social media platforms, TikTok or Instagram, things like this. Uh, it could range all the way to supply chain dynamics. We worked with Walmart China on supply chain initiatives and publicly listed companies in, in Taiwan for IoT blockchains. So, I mean, it really stretches across the gambit. When you have a uh, uh, layer one backbone consensus, and then you also have native oracles and cross chain bridges, um, the, the user demographic and user base or, or, or uh typical client uh, persona, it's spread all, uh, a, a massive number of different opportunities. So we, we've That's got a lot going on.
1: Uh, just, to be, just to be clear on a narrow point, your, uh, your services work across all these smart contract protocols, across Ethereum, Cardano, Solana, Polygon, all of these things. There's no,
0: it works across all of them, right? So uh, when we go to market initially, we'll work across all the EVM chains, the Ethereum virtual machine chains. So that's oh. Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Avalanche, uh, Polygon, Arbitrum, Optimism, and, and several others. And then we'll also be servicing as a priority the Aptos and SWE chains, all of the uh, Facebook derivatives. Uh, From there, we'll start scaling into other smaller Layer 1s and Layer 2s. We'll provide our APIs. And it's a very simple access point for any senior developer with uh, one or two years under their belt. They should be able to implement our Oracle pricing data feeds and pull that. Uh, within about an hour, uh, okay. at- so, so all the smart contract, all the major smart contract protocols,
1: you can help them. Yes, uh, definitely. that's what I'm Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, one reason, one reason I asked you about partnerships is because um, I'm kind of interested in ways in which collaboration can increase progress here. And if I made some grand sweeping statement like we're in the beginnings of a of a slow transition from Web 2.0 to Web 3.0, that is a very sweeping statement. Uh, We've talked a lot uh, in this conversation as if everything depends, um, until we got to partnerships, everything depends upon entrepreneurs, innovators, doing things to make things faster, more more scalable. And it it prompts me to ask you, is there something you think that um, you're doing partnerships, that's a form of collaboration, is there something that regulators could do in this area? And I'll, and I'll give you an, an idea of, of, and maybe this is not necessarily regulatory, but could be a collaborative project, would something like data standards, the imposition of data standards that could be agreed among all the players actually help to solve that Oracle data speed issue? So what can regulators do? What can what can this industry learn from TradFi about how to make things easier and faster through collaboration, through Regulatory harmonization?
0: I think that's a, a great question. It, it needs to happen. Um, I'm not a full proponent of uh, anarchist crypto where everyone hides their identities and nothing's ever exposed. There needs to be some sort of counterparty risk involved w- with anything. So, you know, that's why verified credentials and trust anchors are so important. Uh, I think from a regulatory perspective, how do we? enable this playbot uh, playground how do we enable these opportunities for developers to, to try this open canvas and still build something that is um, is not breaching security laws that's um, including it's it fully inclusive for retail users as well as major institutions and and, and also helping cross-border relations and regulations uh, for for Money transfers. Um, I think there are certain jurisdictions that are already doing some fantastic things. Singapore, for instance, you know, I'm proud uh, local resident of Singapore for the past three years, and they're incredibly progressive. But we also see rising um, jurisdictions such as Dubai, which are trying to make it more tax friendly, which are trying to make it uh, make access to licenses a bit easier. Um, but really trying to grow the community out there. And uh, you've got other jurisdictions that are heavily involved in the tokenization of assets and movement of CBDCs like, uh, uh, like Liechtenstein and Luxembourg and Monaco, France. Uh, Germany is doing quite well. Uh, even the UK has got uh, some pretty sweeping tokenization, <clears throat> interesting um, um, POCs on tokenization. And I think the more you see these um, regulatory sandboxes start to emerge, some of the, you know, originally it started in these offshore jurisdictions, but now you're seeing mainland um, regulators start to get involved. And once those conversations start to happen between these different regulators, uh, you're seeing a a more uh, open-minded environment for them to accept new types of licenses that really can contribute back to the ecosystem and allow people to work in a defined set of standards, right? So Singapore, for instance, has uh, created a a new licensing for digital payment tokens, right? So any kind of payment that might occur in a cryptocurrency uh, now has its own license to to run through that. Uh, They've created several structures for cryptocurrency companies to to establish themselves in Singapore, and, you know, I think that when we have this overall infrastructure uh, in place, it's it, it really opens the door for, for everyone to start trying things in, in a regulated way without having these <clears throat> anonymous, um, ridiculous things happening. It, it becomes much more social proof than acceptable. That uh, the same goes for data standards, right? When when institutions like um, uh, ISO and uh uh, BSI and these different groups start composing these different data standards and having standards like ISO 20022 that's converted over and accessible in, in the Web3 environment, uh, when you take fixed APIs and you allow them to feed into blockchain environments, then you start really opening up the door for you know traditional finance to understand what's happening, what kind of uh, value add is there going to be how does that original system work? And people who are very familiar with those types of um, um, uh, channels and communication can can easily understand why that's useful for for web three. And I assume an organization like yours, which is interested primarily in trying
1: to uh, link up these fragmented pools of liquidity trapped in non-interoperable blockchain protocols would actually welcome some regulatory harmonization, some kind of agreement on certain common principles, if you like, so that when uh, a digital asset moves across national borders, or I don't know, something like the travel rule is being implemented, you could at least expect some agreement on the basic components of that. Uh, Like the size of the transaction would be the same in multiple jurisdictions. Um, You just need to nod to that. I'm sure it's it's something you you agree with. Um, A couple of um, final questions for you and I'm gonna ask you about your vision thing in a minute, but mm-hmm. um, first I'd like to ask about Chainlink. Um, you've, you've, you have mentioned them once or twice. They're obviously your your principal competitor. Um,
0: how do you differentiate yourselves from, from Chainlink? You know, I think uh, first and foremost, we have to give hats off to Chainlink for pioneering space because they were the original Oracle for Web3, and before that, there just wasn't an opportunity to have uh, 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 this type of feature already pre-built that developers could utilize. Before that, if uh, anyone was trying to uh, build an application that needed outside world data, they, they would be trying to code that themselves. So Chainlink really opened the door for a new type of service that's, that's very much needed and has catalyzed the growth of uh, blockchain environments and crypto into real world adoption in 2017 there was you know there were a lot of use cases uh, there wasn't much main um, like actual adoption or utility it was it was largely speculation uh, and and the interesting thing is that thanks to Oracle networks we've now been able to um, recreate financial environments in in web3 in a trustless space and that's that's thanks to chainlink so, you know, they've got great educational content, documentation, materials. They're uh, a force to be reckoned with, and they've got, a, they've got their position for a good reason. Um, the, the good thing about uh, coming in later, though, is that you can see uh, discrepancies and faults and smaller things that might have been missed along the way. When you're an organization of that magnitude, you can't focus on everything. And one benefit that we've had over the last four or five years in watching Chainlink and uh, you know, putting out multiple uh, market analysts uh, research reports, and talking to developers, talking to co-founders of applications, is that we get to see, you know, what are the things and gaps, uh, what are the what are the holes that Chainlink has left behind in in their in their chainlink fence, right? Uh, and then how can we fill those gaps? and what can we provide that's better? And you know, just to put it very simply, and I think I've got it up over here, We've got better security, better speed, better finality. And I think uh, it's about time that we, we have that on market. So as I mentioned from some of the benchmark numbers before uh, on BNB chain, uh, our, our analysts were testing out chain link refresh rates, 30 seconds. On Avalanche it was around 45 seconds and on Ethereum is around a minute, 30 seconds. We were pulling in refresh rates for data feeds at three to five seconds. So, you know, even on, its, uh, on, our, on, our, on our fastest side and their fastest side, we're still a 10X, our three-second three uh, Binance Smart Chain data feeds at 30 seconds. Um, on the slow side, we're, we're even more. So um, at the same time, you know, that, that would be the speed element, speed element, finality element. On the security element, we are composed of a, a, a set of nodes, almost 500 nodes in our ecosystem when you're pulling from a chain link data feed, it's from directly from the end user itself. So if finances, APIs went out or, or someone was able to manipulate that in any way, you're pulling directly from a, a stale or tarnished data feed immediately. So bad data in, you know, bad data out, bad data in is it, it, how it goes. We try to mitigate that through taking a, a very large sample size of data sources and then creating a median value from that that we can then publish to any of the end consumers. Um, and we use a huge amount of nodes that are not attackable uh, in, in the traditional sample. If you've ever heard about why blockchain consensus is so secure and why can't Bitcoin be infiltrated or, or you know how could you not add more Bitcoin or how could you not change the transaction amount? Um, they talk about a 51% attack. And the 51% attack is essentially why Blockchains can stand up for their security guarantees. Chainlink is just an API data feed call, and we are a blockchain layer one consensus. So our data feed security would would necessitate uh, you know hundreds of million dollars to, to actually try to impact the that data as it goes out. Whereas on on the Chainlink side, you know, you, thankfully you know that hasn't. Ever fully collapsed yet? But we are seeing delayed data feeds and minor extracted value and and um, all sorts of manipulation for for pricing on that side. So, the Oracle piece is fundamental in moving crypto forward. It's fundamental in helping uh, financial institutions get involved in crypto and 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 um, and also to monetize it. Right. So, hopefully, we're providing those better services that can. Ease access points, make it uh, more efficient, and um, you know, from a from a cost perspective, we're we're trying to lower the barrier to entry. Um, we have predict, uh, predictable and, and budgetable pricing, so standard across the board, uh, not paid in some volatile supra token or anything like that. I mean, it can't be, but we're, we're taking payments in, in both fiat and USDC stablecoin. So, you know, uh, really trying to ease the, the access points here.
1: By the way, have you shown those TPS rates and those security defenses
0: to your friends at MasterCard? Uh, we have, yeah. yeah. There are some very nice conversations going on there. Uh, uh, I thought they would be very
1: interested in those. Yeah. Uh, look, my my last my last question to you um, is this. I made a very sweeping statement a little while back about we're on this journey from Web 2.0 to Web 3.0. Um, on the assumption we all know what web 2.0 is and web 3.0 is, although we can have that discussion probably the rest of the afternoon. Uh, as, you, as you look forward, where all the trends which you're involved with and which you see and which you're help to accelerate, uh, what do you think that end state is going to look like? What's that web 3.0 universe that you're actually helping to create going to look like, do you think? What will be its outstanding characteristics Beyond decentralization?
0: You know, I think when we look towards, let's say, the next 5, 10, 15 years, it it becomes a way, you know, credit cards, intermediate banks, uh, neo banking, online mobile banking, disintermediated brick and mortar, um, and payment platforms like Revolut and Stripe, the disintermediated credit card companies. I think that what Web3 is bringing to the table is, is a way now for individuals, for institutions to lower the amount of uh, middleman involvement that typically occurs in, in most markets, right? There's, there's always value leakage to some degree because everyone wants a chunk of any kind of transaction or data that's occurring. And what Web3, you know, in its entirety is really trying to achieve is autonomy self sovereignty financial freedom data privacy and financial privacy for individuals for institutions for small to medium businesses from you know mega conglomerates and so i think that in the next 5 10 15 years we see the um, emergence of uh, very simple platforms that you know i'll be able to load on my phone uh, off of a, a normal uh, um, um, app store or Google play. And it'll be backed by uh, crypto or blockchain, a layer one, layer two, have some element of NFTs involved that are totally hidden to people. They don't need to know why it works. They don't need to know what's going on. Uh, they just need to know that it works, right? And hopefully we can get to the stage where instead of, um, Needing to do education about how blockchain is safe and uh, how it's increasing speeds and uh, increasing efficiency and decreasing costs, and you know all these various elements. After it's been proven and people trust it, it's reliable. I think we'll move into the space where it becomes com- consumer friendly and consumer ready for mass market adoption. And then it's going to be at the back end of Instagram and the back end of TikTok or whatever the new platforms are. It's going to be part of your, you, you know. Um, uh you're, you're you're back in uh, at charles schwab and uh, if you're trading on robin hood or you know if you're um, uh, asset manager hedge fund managers something along those lines that all be run off of tokenization tokenized assets blockchain elements nft access points uh and these kind of things and you know it's it's still early stage that's all i can say to people i thought i was late in 2016 when i came to the to, to the to the crypto environment um, and I'm, I'm realizing now, you know, it's 2022, I still feel like I'm early after I've seen how much growth there is, you know, just talking about, uh, for instance, uh, so some of those other traditional markets, uh, if, if we're looking at um, interest rate swaps and in, in, in the trillions, right, uh, of daily volume, but, um, crypto markets at the moment, only 2 trillion total market cap. So there's, a lot of upside for growth. Uh, World Economic Forum, twenty-seven trillion in twenty in five years from now, um, and, and I think that what Web three is going to become is, is really an all-inclusive environment for for everyone. Uh, hopefully, we can start to dive into even other initiatives like uh, universal basic income, and um, uh, I think it's, uh, I'll, I'll, the last ten years was predicated on on. Uh, discussions with regulators and and uh, with large companies about data privacy. right? I think in the next ten years, it's going to be about financial privacy. What does what does me uh, putting my money in the bank mean versus me holding my money in self custody? If that becomes more secure, I'm not uh, I'm not put at risk in case there's a bank run or a default or you know anything like that. If I can earn, if I can earn upwards of 1.5% to 10% yield on my own money at home, why wouldn't I rehypothecate my own funds? No. Uh, if it becomes simplified, if it becomes trusted, if it becomes mainstream, that's the next step towards um, uh, uh, asset management. So I, I, I think there's many different arenas that, uh, that this can turn into, and it's really about innovation and, and trying new things. So... Uh, it's exciting I love I love this space and you know I think it is the future of finance
1: if I was to summarize what you're saying we'll know we're in web 3.0 when the technology is basically invisible it just works at speed at scale and at low cost yeah yes Kim thanks very much for taking the time to talk to future of finance